Let us pray. Our Father, Almighty, wise and gracious, we cry out to You today. We give You thanks and praise for who You are and all Your wonderful works. Your handiwork throughout the creation shows Your power. Your providence shows Your faithfulness and constancy. Your redemption shows Your eternal love, mercy and grace. We thank You that You put forth Your Son as a sacrifice to absorb the wrath that we deserve to accomplish our redemption, to forgive our sins, to bring us freedom, to reconcile us to You. And we thank You and praise You for You have poured out Your Holy Spirit on us, that You might come and live within us, that You might unite us to Your Son and give us new life. We thank You for making us members of Your church, Your holy family, the covenant community, the body and bride of Christ Jesus. We thank You for Your inspired Word, for baptism, for the Lord's Supper, We thank You for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ and all things pertaining to life and godliness. We are here to give You thanks for everything and in everything, to honor You for Your majesty, for Your excellence, for Your beauty, to bring You glory by declaring Your greatness, and to receive Your gifts so that we might know Your peace, that we might have assurance of Your love, that we might share in Your wisdom. O great Father, with Your Son, and with the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, from eternity to eternity, be all honor, glory, and praise. Amen. I also want to read from Titus, the second chapter, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that You would speak to us through Your Word, that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, the truth of the Gospel might be impressed upon our hearts, that the character of Christ Jesus might be imprinted upon our character, that we might live more fully and faithfully for You and for Your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Titus 2, 11-14, is actually one sentence in the original Greek. And what a wonderful sentence it is. It is really the Gospel, the good news about Jesus, and the Christian life. How we're to live in in light of all Christ has done for us. It's really the, the Gospel and the Christian life crystallized and summarized for us in one sentence. Paul wrote this letter to Titus, who was a pastor on the island of Crete. And there on the island of Crete, there was a Jewish population, which, like a lot of Jewish communities in the day, was known for its legalism. And there were also native Cretans there, pagans, who were known for their wild living and for their laziness and for their dishonesty. In this one sentence in Paul's letter to Titus, he really summarizes what the message of Pastor Titus should be on the island of Crete. And it's a message we need to hear too. 
See, as Christians, we never outgrow the Gospel. We never outgrow our need for the Gospel. It's not like we get the Gospel down and then move on to other things. Rather, we always need the Gospel. We always need to be growing in our understanding of the Gospel. And this is because it's so easy for us to get the Gospel wrong, to slip off in that direction or in that direction. And because we get the Gospel wrong, it's easy for us to get the Christian life wrong. The church father Tertullian said that just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so there are two thieves who seek to steal the Gospel from us. And he identified those thieves as legalism and lawlessness. Some of you really struggle with the thief of legalism. You have a hard time believing you're really forgiven. You know you've sinned. And you know what you deserve because of your sin. And you just can't let go of the burden of guilt. You feel unloved and even unlovable. You feel inadequate and you're often on the brink of despair. Uh, you constantly struggle with measuring up. The expectations may come from childhood, they may come from yourself, they may come from friends, they may come from Scripture, but you know you can't meet them and it frustrates you no matter how hard you try. It doesn't seem to be enough. It's not good enough. And so life for you feels like an endless treadmill. You're trying to earn favor and it just isn't working. You know even your best efforts are stained with sin and fall short of God's glory, God's standard. And so what's the use? Have you ever felt that way? Has that ever characterized your life? If so, that is the thief of legalism stealing your joy and freedom in the Gospel. But others of you have a different problem. It's lawlessness. And I think this was actually the predominant issue on the island of Crete. I think it's the predominant issue in our culture. You find yourself thinking, you know, God's gracious. And so surely this sin isn't that big of a deal. I can tell this lie, cheat on this test, take another drink. It's not going to really matter because God wants me happy. Most of all, God wants me happy. And so surely I deserve this. I can watch what I want and say what I want and do what I want. In fact, this is so common. Uh, sociologist Christian Smith has identified it as moralistic therapeutic deism and has called it the predominant religion of modern America. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, the only problem I have with that name is that it's really not all that moralistic. It's really immoral therapeutic deism. In this worldview, uh, the main purpose God serves is to build up our self-esteem, to make us feel better about ourselves. And so you know, this kind of lawlessness has taken hold when we are oblivious to our selfishness and our self-absorption. When we are consumerists, identifying ourselves with what we buy or with our favorite entertainers. Or when we become hedonists and pleasure becomes the overarching purpose of our life. We live for the weekend. We live to have fun. Or when we refuse to take moral stands, lest we come off as seeming judgmental. In the church, I think this tendency to lawlessness is seen when failure is practically celebrated as a virtue. I read one pastor who put it this way to his congregation. He said, Christian, you cannot obey the law of God, but that is okay. Your certain failure and brokenness is a means to show forth the grace of God. 
There are some Christians who are so afraid of legalism, they slip into lawlessness. They're so afraid of falling into legalism that they fear even making the effort to obey is suspect and dangerous. And if we make that effort to obey, well, it's certain to lead to either despair, because in our best efforts we'll still fail, or it leads to self-righteousness if we fool ourselves into thinking we've actually done it. And so in this view of the Christian life, really the best thing to do is to not try that hard, but just keep reminding yourself that you are forgiven. The Christian life basically becomes keep on reminding yourself of your justification. Let's see, if you, if you go this direction, the grace of God really becomes an excuse for sin. A license for immorality. Jude 4 talks about false teachers creeping into the church, teaching that grace is a license for careless living. And against that, Jude shows us this gospel grace includes forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. Grace never condones sin. The moment we think grace condones sin, we have lost what grace really is. And so you have legalism that is a distortion of the gospel, and you have lawlessness that is a reduction of the gospel. The thief of lawlessness steals the power and victory of the gospel from us, just as the thief of legalism steals the joy and, 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 and freedom that we have in the gospel. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, in one sentence, Paul defeats both of these thieves. Whatever they've stolen from us, Paul reclaims it and restores it for us here. In these verses, Paul leads us through the maze of legalism and lawlessness to safety. Against the legalists, these verses show us that our salvation is by grace from start to finish. We can't earn anything, but we don't need to earn anything because our whole salvation is a free gift of God's mercy to us in Christ. And yet, against the lawless, these verses show us that how we live really does matter. Grace not only forgives sin, grace also empowers us to obey and to please God and to defeat sin in our lives. The same grace that forgives also transforms. Jesus did not die for you, Paul shows here. Jesus did not die for you so that you can wallow in your sin, but so that you can crush your sin and kill your sin and bury your sin and then dance on sin's grave. That's what the grace of God does for us. Paul shows us here, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. God's grace and God's love not only forgive us, but change us. And so Titus 2 really shows us the whole package of the Gospel, the whole package of the Christian life. Now what's interesting is this passage is structured in terms of two appearings. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This is Paul's way of describing the coming of Jesus into history, into the world. The incarnation of the Son, Jesus as God incarnate, entering into our history and our humanity. That's the appearing of the grace of God. His earthly ministry, His death and resurrection, these are all manifestations of God's grace. Paul can sum up the whole life and ministry of Jesus by calling it the appearing, the appearance of God's saving grace in history. Before Jesus came, this grace was promised and foreshadowed. Now in Jesus, these promises have been fulfilled. Jesus is the grace of God. He is the promises of God in person. He is the fulfillment. 
But then Paul mentions another appearing in verse 13. He says, we look for, we look ahead to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he's talking about the final coming of Jesus. He says Jesus will come again at the end of all things. He will appear in glory to complete His saving work. There is this future appearing as well. Here we can say Jesus is God's glory. He is the revelation of God's glory. He is the embodiment of God's glory. And that glory may be hidden somewhat at present, but at the last day, it will appear in fullness. And that is our blessed hope. So I want you to notice here the pattern of this passage. The pattern of this passage looks like this. Verse 11, past appearing of Jesus in grace. Verse 12, present implications. Verse 13, future appearing of Jesus in glory. Verse 14, present implications. And so in verse 11, you have the truth that is behind us, our foundation. In verse 13, you have the truth that is ahead of us, our hope. And then verses 12 and 14, fill in with truth for the present. In light of that past and that future, here's the present. And so what I want you to notice here is that really form and content match. The past and future appearings of Jesus structure this passage, but the past and future appearings of Jesus also structure the Christian life. It's not just a literary device to structure this passage in terms of the two appearings of Jesus. It really also structures the Christian life. So let's look at this passage according to... Its structure. Again, verse 11, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared in history in Jesus. What is the result? Verse 12, he tells us, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires so that we may live sober, righteous, and godly lives in the present age that is right now. See, Jesus has inaugurated a new age. His appearing in grace has inaugurated a new age in which His grace will be the dominant force in history. And His grace teaches us or trains us in these virtues. Certainly we could say the things that Paul lists here in verse 12 are all things that Jesus taught in His earthly ministry. Jesus was a gracious teacher. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. We read a little snippet of it, a little piece of it this morning. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he calls us to a greater obedience and a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Towards the end of that sermon, he calls on us to enter the narrow gates and to walk along the narrow path. He calls on us to build our houses on the rock of obedience to his word. The Sermon on the Mount is all about training in righteousness. How to say no to worldly desires and yes to obedience. Or think about how Jesus called disciples to follow Him. His calls to discipleship. What does He say? He says, deny yourself. Denying yourself is essentially denying ungodliness. Saying no to self is like saying no to ungodliness and to idolatry. When Jesus gives His call to discipleship, it's the same kind of thing Paul is aiming at here in verse 12. Jesus calls on disciples to take up their crosses and follow Him. That is, to die to the old that they might live a new way. 
Or even think of the way Jesus summarizes the law with the two commandments, the love commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's really a summary of what it means to live a righteous and godly life. The kind of life Paul calls for here in Titus 2. There's no question that during his earthly ministry, Jesus was a gracious teacher of ethics. He taught the greatest and highest ethics the world has ever known. He trained his disciples to live the way Titus 2 describes. But when Titus 2.12 says grace trains us or teaches us these virtues, it means more than just giving us a code of ethics to live by. In fact, if that's all it was, it's hard to see how that would be called an appearance of grace at all. That would really be no different than the, no different than the Pharisees. If all Jesus did was go, go around raising the bar and then saying, try harder, that's not really gracious. That's crushing. That's a crushing burden. Well, the grace that appeared in Jesus is not like that, or it's more than that. It's not a grace that remains external to us. It is a transformative, life-changing power. And that's because Jesus doesn't just stand over us and outside of us, coaching us on what's right and what's wrong. Instead, He actually comes to live within us, to abide in us in order to redirect our lives. He unites us to Himself. And so we actually come to share in His life. And so His virtue is reproduced in us. See, for the grace of God to appear in Jesus means the Christian life, the the life of a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, is not going to be lived in our own strength. Left to ourselves, we are powerless. We're powerless to do good. We're slaves to sin, Paul says. But united to the crucified and risen Christ, we can crucify sin and we can live a new kind of life. Because Christ Himself lives in us, we can live a new way. Martin Luther said, faith unites a believer to Christ as a bride to her husband. A bride and a husband become one. They share a common life. Luther says, by faith, we share in Christ's own life. We become one with Him. John Calvin said the principal work of the Holy Spirit is to make us sharers and participants in Christ Himself. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us that Christ might dwell in us. That we might share in Christ's own life. That we might be partakers of His life. In fact, that's really what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 6. We read the first part of that chapter this morning. It's interesting how the book of Romans unfolds. Paul has laid out justification by faith alone in Romans 3, 4, and 5. And after he's shown that we are forgiven and declared righteous by faith alone because of Christ's death for our sins, Paul knows there's a question coming. His conversation partner, his dialogue partner listening to his preaching is going to ask a question. And it's going to go like this. He opens with this in Romans 6. The question is going to be this. Are you saying then, that we can sin all the more so that grace will abound. If we're saved by grace and not by our works, are you saying that we can sin all the more, sin all we want, so that grace will abound? 
The legalist would ask that question to Paul because he's thinking, oh no, this gospel is a disaster. This gospel is going to make people morally reckless. If you tell people they're not saved by their works, then they're just going to live however they please with no thought to the law of God, no thought to the good of others, no thought to the glory of God. It's going to be a disaster. Meanwhile, the lawless heart will ask this question, shall we go on in sin so that grace may abound? Thinking, hey, this sounds great. This is just what I've been looking for. I'm good at sinning. It sounds like God is good at forgiving. And so this is a match made in heaven. This is a perfect marriage. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. How great is that? The more I sin, the more gracious God looks. But what does Paul do? How does he actually answer the question in Romans 6. He cuts through legalism and lawlessness with a third way. We'll call it the union with Christ way. And he says, you have been united to Christ. You've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. And so you cannot go on in sin in the same way you did before because you are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Because you've been united to Christ, you live a new life. Out with the old, in with the new. There's a new power that's been unleashed in your life. A new force that is at work in your life. In union with Christ, you can live a new way. For Paul, union with Christ underwrites the Christian life. It drives the Christian life. It powers the Christian life. For Paul, the Gospel is Christ and our union with Him. The Gospel is, we have been united to Christ and so we share in all that is His. And so what does Paul do in Romans chapter 6? In essence, he says to the Christian, be who you are. Or even become who you are. Live out your in Christness. Live out your new identity in Christ. Who you are determines what you do. And now in union with Christ, you're a a different kind of person. You're going to live a different kind of way. Timothy Chester, who is a a British pastor, uh, he tells the story of the late queen mother of the British royal family. Uh, When her children, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, were young, and when they would be going to a party or on a visit, she would remind them before they left, Royal children have royal manners. It was a reminder to the girls that their actions needed to match their status and indeed flow out of their status. Status comes first and way of life follows. What Paul is saying in Romans 6 really amounts to the same thing. In Christ, we are members of the royal family of the universe. That's our status. And so Paul's saying now behavior, now actions, now a way of life follows that. Your behavior, your lifestyle should match your status. It should match who you are. Royal children have royal manners. You're united to Christ. Now live like William Willimon tells the story of when he was growing up in South Carolina in his faithful Methodist household. How every time he went out with friends on a Friday night, his mom would say, remember who you are. And that's what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 6. He's saying to the Christian, remember who you are as one who is united to Christ. You've been baptized into Christ's death and into His resurrection. You've got to live a new kind of life. See, in Christ you have the power to obey, the power to grow, the power to change. 
The power to live a godly, righteous life. The power to say no to sin and self. The power to say yes to obedience. And this power does not come from within, from our own resources. This power does not even come from feelings of gratitude that we can drum up by remembering all that Jesus has done for us. There's some people who put it that way. The, the engine that's going to drive the Christian life is gratitude, remembering all that Jesus has done for you. But that puts an awful lot of pressure on my feelings of gratitude, my ability to feel thankful at all times for what Jesus has done. Now, the real power for the Christian life doesn't come from me. It doesn't even come from my gratitude. It comes from Christ Himself living within me. Christ has united Himself to me. And so in Christ, I now have everything that is His. Everything I could possibly need to live a godly life. Outside of Christ, I have nothing. In Christ, I have everything. There's a saying theologians use, there are no benefits apart from the benefactor. But in Christ, our benefactor, we have every imaginable benefit. Every spiritual blessing is found in Him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, as the Savior, so the saved. All that is true of Christ is now true of me. I share in all He has done. So my salvation is in Christ. My perseverance is in Christ. My justification is in Christ. My sanctification is in Christ. Because of the grace that has appeared in Jesus. Because of Christ's past death and resurrection. I now have the power to lead a Godward life in the present age. In Christ I've been forgiven and I am being changed. And it's union with Christ that holds all of this together. John Calvin talked about it as the twofold gift of forgiveness and transformation. I'm declared righteous in Christ and now I'm being made righteous in Christ. And what this means is that I can actually be an optimist about my growth, my prospects for growth in the Christian life. It means there really is power through Christ to overcome habitual sins that I can't seem to shake or get rid of, addictive sins that people in our culture today would say there's no way you can ever overcome that. I can kill even stubborn sins that have been with me for years. Now, somebody will hear that and say, now wait a second, doesn't Paul say we're slaves to sin and we're dead in sins and trespasses and those kinds of things? Well, yes, but we need to understand that Paul's pessimism about humanity, and yes, Paul was a pessimist about humanity because he saw the power of sin. Paul's pessimism about humanity is matched and indeed exceeded by his optimism about the Gospel. Paul was a pessimist about man's prospects if left to himself. He does say things like man is dead in his sins and trespasses. Man is a slave to sin. Man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. His heart has been blinded. But all of those descriptions of humanity are descriptions of men outside of Christ. They're not true any longer of those who are inside Christ. Those who are united to Christ. In union with Christ, it's a whole different story. Paul says things like this about the Christian. He says, you can put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit. You can walk in good works prepared beforehand for you to do. You can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can grow in faith. You can obey God. You can please God. It's been said the job of a pastor is twofold. 
to convince the non-Christian that he is totally depraved and cannot please God. And to convince the Christian that he is not totally depraved and can please God. That's the job of the pastor. To tell the non-Christian he's totally depraved and can do nothing. And to remind the Christian he's not totally depraved anymore and can please God. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared in Jesus. Grace does not mean what I do doesn't matter. Grace rather changes what I do. And this change cuts across the whole of life. Look again at those three positive virtues that Paul says grace works in us. He says we become self-controlled. That obviously has to do with your relationship to yourself. He says we become righteous. That has to do with your relationships with other people. And he says we become godly. That has to do with our relationship to God. The whole of your life is transformed by the grace of God. Because of the good that God has done for you in Christ, you can now do good for Him in Christ. The grace of God in Christ gives the Christian life its shape and its content and its power. The only proper way to respond to the grace that has appeared in Christ is with a life of trust and obedience. A life of holiness and love. But that grace didn't just appear outside of us. That grace has come to dwell within us. The grace revealed in Christ's death and resurrection leads us to crucify sin and vivify obedience. That's how John Calvin summarized the whole Christian life. You mortify and you vivify. It's the mortification of the old and the vivification of the new. And that's what Paul shows us here. There are things we say no to and now things we say yes to. That's the pattern of the Christian life. All lived by the grace of God. But while Christ's past appearing is the foundation for the Christian life, Paul shows us here His future appearing is the capstone of the Christian life. And if we leave this out, we've really still got an incomplete Gospel. So consider this. Look at verse 12. Paul says, we are looking for the blessed hope. What is this blessed hope? It is the final coming of Christ. We live a good life now, but we await an even better life. And thus we are filled with hope. The Christian life is a life of hope. It is a hope-filled life. If grace from the past pushes us from behind, hope for the future pulls us forward. That's the pattern Paul gives us here. We're being pushed from behind by grace. We're being pulled forward by this hope. We get it in both directions. Our blessed hope is the appearing of Jesus in glory. Just as God's grace is the person of Jesus Himself, so God's glory is Jesus Himself. Just as our faith is in Christ alone, so our hope is in Christ alone as well. But there's a great big problem here. Paul says the final coming of Jesus, His final appearing in glory, is our hope. But you know, the whole rest of Scripture is really clear about what's going to happen when Christ returns. There's not any, there can't be any debate about this. It's so plain in Scripture. What's going to happen when Jesus returns? The dead will be raised. There'll be a complete renovation of heaven and earth. And everyone will be judged. 
again and again throughout the Scriptures, we see at the last day, we will all stand before the throne of judgment and give an account for how we have lived our lives. The final judgment will be in accord with our works. It will be according to works. And yet that seems to be a terrifying thought. How can Christ's final coming be our blessed hope? Why isn't it our final terror? I mean, we don't look forward to final exams at the end of a semester. So how can we look forward to this final judgment, this final day of reckoning, this final day when all our works will be tested? A kind of final exam at the end of of all things, covering the whole of our lives. How can we look forward to that with hope? How can that be a blessed hope? Why is it not a living terror to us to think ahead to that last day? Well, let's see if Paul answers that question for us here. Paul goes on, he says, Christ's final coming will be the appearing of our great God and Savior. And then Paul says, this Savior gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now what does he mean by that? Well, simple, it means this. Our judge is the Savior. We're going to be judged by the One who has saved us. We're going to be judged by the One who has already been judged in our place. We don't need to fear the final judgment because Christ has already stood judgment in our place. He stood trial in our place. He was convicted and condemned and executed in our place on our behalf for our sins. And so our sins cannot be used to condemn us at the last day. If we are in Christ at the last day, we can no more be condemned than Christ Himself can be condemned. Paul says here that Christ redeemed us from lawlessness. That word redeem, that's an exodus word. That's part of the exodus vocabulary in the Scriptures. It takes you back to the book of Exodus. What is the book of Exodus about? It's about freeing slaves. Remember the Exodus, the the book of Exodus. God redeems Israel from Egypt. If we have been redeemed, it means we are His new Israel. We have been redeemed from the Egypt of lawlessness. And it means at the last day, He's going to bring us into the promised land of His new creation. The Exodus, our redemption, will be complete. The pattern of Israel really shows us the pattern of the Christian life. The Exodus is the model. It's the template. We've been liberated from slavery to sin and lawlessness. We've been given a new law just as Israel was at Sinai. First you're rescued, then you get the rules to live by. We live by this law as we journey through the promised land, as we we journey through the wilderness, and we will finally enter the promised land when Christ returns at the last day. That's the pattern Paul's giving us here when he says Christ redeems us. That's why this hope is a blessed hope. It's the completion of the Exodus. We were redeemed from lawlessness in order to live according to God's law. But we've still got this issue. I don't think that really settles it. There is this issue of a final judgment. It is not enough to say that Christ stood judgment in our place on the cross and so we don't have to fear the final judgment because again, Scripture's clear time after time, this judgment is according to our works. Not according to Christ's works, but according to our works. Again, Scripture is clear. When Jesus returns, everyone will be judged according to his or her works. Again, how can that be good news? How can that be hopeful? Well, again, keep going. Jesus, uh, Paul, Paul goes on to say that Jesus died to make us zealous for good works. Zealots for good. 
He died to give us a zeal for good works. Now, here's the problem with this. I know that very conscientious Christians with sensitive consciences, appropriately sensitive consciences, would want to say, but see, that's the problem. I have never done a good work. Because I know even the best works I've done have been stained with some kind of imperfection. Okay? Uh, I, 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 that, that's what the conscientious Christian would say. But God begs to dip. And here's why. When the Holy Spirit enables us to obey, even to take little baby steps of obedience, those works, however imperfect, whatever defects and flaws they may have, are still considered by God to be good works. Why? Because His Spirit produced them in us. And because He looks at them through the death of His Son and receives them through the intercession of His Son. The Spirit works all your good works in you. And the Son presents those good works to the Father with His blood and His intercession covering whatever defects they still have. And so at the last day, you can be assured the Father will approve of those works. He will say to you, you will say about yourself, I am an unprofitable servant. But the Father will look at you and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. See, this is how it works right now. When God justifies us, He declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's work for us. In the future, when God judges us, He will declare us righteous in accordance with the Spirit's work in us. He will not look at the work of His Spirit in you and say, well, that's not good enough. That's just not good enough. I'm sorry. He's not going to condemn the work of His Spirit in you. No, He delights in the work of His Spirit in you. Even though, yes, it falls short of that perfect standard revealed in the law, God still delights in you as His Spirit-filled child. And that's why you can look ahead to the final judgment with hope and with joy. In fact, look at what Paul goes on to say here. He says, Christ has made us His own special people. We are His treasured possession, His prized people, His crown jewel. That's your identity as a member of the people of God. Paul says He's purified you for Himself. He's made you holy. He's made you a zealot for what is good. And all of this is through His love and mercy. All of this is because He surrounds you with His love and His mercy. When Paul says here that you become his own special people, his prized people, he's saying, look, God doesn't just tolerate you. God doesn't just put up with you. God delights in you. God rejoices over you with singing. Christ loved you and gave himself for you. And he is coming again to get you and to bring you into his glorious home for all eternity. He is bringing you out of the Egypt of lawlessness and he is bringing you into the promised land of his new creation. And that's your hope. Your whole salvation from start to finish is his work. You've been redeemed by grace, revealed in the past. You're destined for glory to be revealed in the future. And so there's no need to fall into the trap of legalism thinking you've got to earn, earn, earn. Or thinking that Jesus got this started, but now I've got to finish it in my own strength. No, it's all grace. But there's also no need to fall into the trap of lawlessness. 
thinking your situation is so hopeless, why even bother? Why even try? Why not just give yourself over to sin? No. You have a blessed hope. And there's a power at work in you in the present to change you and transform you. Let me give you one final thought on this. When we cast ourselves upon Christ as our Savior, when we seek to pursue holiness in union with Him, when we seek to live a life of righteousness and love, we are living the way we were made to live. But this has far wider implications than just what it does for our own lives or even what it does for your church or for your family. It's not just a private thing. It's got public history-changing ramifications because it actually promotes Christ's kingdom rule in the world. And you see this if you backtrack a little bit into the first part of Titus 2. Remember what I said about life on the island of Crete. There were Jews there who were known as other Jews in those days were for their legalism, who tended in that direction. And there were Cretans, pagans, who were known for their lawlessness. So you had legalism and lawlessness right there on the island of Crete. And this is how Paul saws through that. You see that here. But what's interesting is Paul also gives all of this a, a missional dimension. In the verses immediately preceding the section we looked at this morning, it becomes obvious Paul is very concerned not only with how Christians live for their own sake, but also with how we live for the sake of the church's witness and mission in the world. And so he's going through instructing Titus what to teach. And he wants Titus to teach his congregation to live a life of good works because a life of good works makes the Gospel look good. And so in verse 5, Titus is to teach young Christian wives to be faithful homemakers, loving their husbands and children, so that the Word of God will not be maligned. Verse 8, he wants Titus to teach Christian young men to have integrity and purity and good works so that their enemies cannot say anything bad about them. And verse 10, he wants Christian servants to work hard so that they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, so they will adorn the doctrine. You see what Paul's doing there? You see the so that there, that, that order, that logic? Paul wants us to live good lives so that the Gospel will look good in the eyes of the world. The way young Christian women and Christian men and Christian servants or employees, the way we live in every aspect of our lives, when we adorn the doctrine, when we live a good life, a life of love and humility, we make the Gospel look good. Can legalists do that? Legalists might have some kind of outward conformity to the law, but there's nothing attractive about their obedience because there's no joy in it. When the lawless live their lawless lives, their lives of disobedience, there's nothing attractive about that either. They're just making their folly evident to all. But when the Christian, by grace and through faith, flowing out of his union with Christ, obeys, his good works make the Gospel look good to outsiders. Your good works preach the Gospel. Your good works proclaim the goodness of God, the grace and the glory of the Savior. I'm so sure obedience is hard. It's often costly. When we seek to obey God, we really are acting in a countercultural way, just as those 
Christians on the island of Crete 2,000 years ago were called to live in a countercultural kind of way. But when our lives adorned the Gospel, outsiders began to take an interest in our message. Our obedience commends the Gospel. So by our obedience, by our faithfulness, we point others to the grace that has appeared and to the glory that will appear. And we, we show that we are sharers in that grace and glory. And we invite others into that grace and glory as well. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the school of grace that Christ enrolls us in. But more than just that, we thank You that Christ comes to live within us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, Your gracious power at work in us to put sin to death and to live righteously. We thank You that this grace we've received leads us to glory. We thank You that Christ is Your grace and Christ is Your glory. And we thank You that we know Him and we ask that You would help us through Him, through our union with Him, to live such good lives. Lives that are so pleasing in Your sight. Lives so filled with love and humility that outsiders all around us see the kind of God You are. Your goodness, Your grace, Your glory. May our lives commend the Gospel. May we live in such a way that others will be attracted to this message. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.